0: I believe in you. I love you all. I have children the same age, so I I feel that connection to you, and I believe that what you're setting out to accomplish, you will accomplish. So there's people here that believe in you, and you are the future of our world. It's so important to continue to follow your dreams, and what you seek out, you will achieve.
1: Well, hello there. It's Dr. Nicoletta with the Millennial Doc Podcast. I'm a physician, dermatologist, lifestyle entrepreneur, mama in medicine, and confidence success strategist. Each week, I'll bring you inspiring guests, lifestyle, relationship, and business tips to help you consistently take action, act confident, and live an abundant life. Step out with confidence and get ready. Hey, Millennial Doc listeners, I am so excited to share with you an incredible interview today. I just want you all to know that I have personally been doing protein pacing for the last three years to maintain my lean body mass. I will be sharing in future episodes, but I did struggle with weight gain in the past and energy in medical school, gaining 20 to 25 pounds. And really at the start of residency, I was at my worst prior to introducing new nutrition and performance strategies that are easy to implement every single day now as a busy resident. So I will discuss those in future MD Minute mini episodes, which I'm super excited to share with you all. So let me just go ahead and introduce you to our guest today. So Dr. Paul J. Arciero a.k.a. Dr. Paul, is a leading international nutrition and applied physiology scientist, keynote speaker, consultant, and Amazon number one best-selling author. He has served as a performance physiology and nutrition expert for some of the nation's most elite, including Special Operations Forces soldiers, Olympic medalists, world-class professional athletes, as well as thousands of collegiate high school and master's athletes of all sports and fitness routines. He has been inducted as a fellow of the leading health organizations in the world, American College of Sports Medicine, the Obesity Society, and the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He serves as a senior consultant and scientific advisory board member to the nutrition, fitness, and wellness industries, and was appointed to the 15-member International Protein Board composed of the leading protein scientists in the world. Dr Paul is an expert in nutrition, fitness and mind-body lifestyle interventions to optimize health and physical performance and has published more than 60 peer-reviewed research studies and 80 published abstracts on performance nutrition and exercise training in the world's most respected scientific journals. His work has been published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, Journal of Clinical Medicine, Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, Frontiers in Physiology, American Journal of Physiology, Journal of the International Neuropsychological Society, Frontiers in Human Neuroscience, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and more. So I am so excited to share with you this interview today with Dr. Paul. Get ready for an incredible scientific evidence-based episode that I know you will love. And if you really did love this episode, please reshare on social media or text a friend so we can spread the knowledge and love to others. I will reshare you as well when you share and tag at Dr. Nicoletta on Instagram. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. Let's get started with Dr. Paul. All right. Awesome. We have Dr. Paul Arciero on the Millennial Doc podcast today, and I'm super excited to ask him all questions, nutrition, exercise, performance, physiology. So I'm very happy to have you on the show today. How are you doing?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. Nicoletta, thanks for having me on here. And I love the name of your podcast, The Millennial Doc. That's going to resonate with a lot of people, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I know. So before we get started, just real quick, I'd love to just ask you some questions for my audience to get to know where you're from. Just rapid fire questions for them to get to know you. Sounds good? Excellent. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in Connecticut, actually, where I am right now. So this is pretty cool. Simsbury, Connecticut.
1: Awesome. And then where are, I, I know currently you're in Connecticut, but where else have you been recently?
0: Yeah, so I, I kind of share time between the West Coast, Phoenix, Arizona, and upstate New York in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is beautiful. So I get the best of both worlds here in this country.
1: Awesome. And then what would you say your favorite quote is?
0: Hmm, that's a great question. I got a lot of quick, great quotes, but my all time favorite is there's nothing noble in being superior. To some other human, true nobility is being superior to your previous self.
1: Wow, that is deep. Wow. Yes, yeah, right off the top <laughs> of my
0: head, actually. So, <laughs> wow,
1: that is so good. <laughs> I hope you guys write that down because I'm gonna have to do that later. <laughs> what is one of your superpowers?
0: Yeah, my superpowers is my ability to have a very high level of emotional intelligence. One of the things that I've kind of been granted from above has been the ability to tap into other people's emotions and when they're in need of help. And so I'm kind of in my family, there's seven children and then my parents, so there was nine of us growing up, but I was kind of the emotional savior. I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's my superpower. I I, I have the ability to be very open and sensitive and aware when somebody emotionally is, is hurting or is struggling and needs some nurturing. And that's what I play. That's the role I play and I embrace it. And yeah, very, very grateful that I have that superpower. <laughs>
1: Wow, that is wonderful. So you said eight siblings?
0: There's seven.
1: Seven total, okay. Yeah. What is one of your favorite books, non-medical, science, anything recently or a book that you just recently read within the last year?
0: Yeah, Unbroken is my all-time favorite. Louis Zamperini, about the story of, of him, but Unbroken is is definitely rise, right up there at the top. And then can I do a little self-public... Uh,
1: yeah,
0: definitely, definitely. <laughs> my, my protein pacing book, The Protein Pacing Diet by Dr. Paul Arciero. number one on Amazon right now. But can I say that's my favorite right now? But
1: oh, of course. Those, of those course. are
0: my two favorites.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to get that. I hope you guys really tune in and listen to this episode because it's going to be awesome. So who is someone else that has changed your life?
0: Oh, gosh, you know, I was so fortunate growing up. Although My living environment at times was absolutely wild chaos in our house (laughs) because we lived in a relatively small house and there was nine people bouncing off the walls. But I had just two of the most loving parents. And I guess my greatest influences outside of my, my parents and my siblings were my maternal grandfather and my paternal grandmother. They are people that believed in me when I didn't always believe in myself. And the lessons that they taught me that... I was not aware of at the time. Boy, just so powerful and impactful in my life now. And those are two people that just entered into my life at the right time, my grandfather and grandmother, and taught me life lessons that, you know, I, I call them very latent learning lessons, that they weren't necessarily immediate at the time. But boy, when I look back and how they've impacted my life moving forward, I, I'm, I feel very blessed to have had those two grandparents.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. What is one of your all-time favorite accomplishments so far?
0: Oh, gosh, that's another really great one. You know, just having a, a beautiful, loving family home uh, with my wife and our three beautiful children. And that's got to be my, my most, for me, sacred and cherished life goal is, is just being able to watch these three beautiful children grow up. So that, for me, is the, the highlight.
1: That's beautiful. And what are their ranges from the age?
0: Yes, my oldest is 25 and the youngest is 18. Okay. Yeah.
1: And where did you go for your schooling?
0: Well, there's a long list. (laughs) I was a fairly successful tennis player coming out of high school. So I was recruited to play in college and I started off down in Florida and I didn't get too far before I dropped out of college, believe it or not. I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm showing my vulnerability right now. So I ended up traveling Europe at the young age of 18 and a half. I was over in Europe playing professional tennis. And then I returned back to the States and I started off at uh, Central Connecticut State University and then and graduated from there with a, with a successful college degree and in, in tennis, college tennis career. And then I went to graduate school at a number of places. One was the University of Vermont. Then I went to Springfield College. And I did a degree at Washington University School of Medicine, where I did my postdoc. And I think those were the, the three graduate schools. I might have left one out. UVM, Springfield, and Washington University. Oh, of course there was one more. Purdue University. I did a, a graduate degree at Purdue University as well. So I have a couple of master's degrees, a PhD, and then my postdoc.
1: Where was the PhD?
0: So that was at, yeah, good question. That was at Springfield College. I okay. actually did my data collection at the University of Vermont where I was doing a second master's degree in nutritional biochemistry. Okay. And
1: then is that Washington University in St. Louis? Louis. Oh, how did you like St. Louis? I love St. Louis.
0: (laughs) I loved it too. And, and, you know, as you know, being a physician, you know, there's probably very few schools that are more acclaimed than Washington University School of Medicine. So I was really fortunate that I was able to do postdoc at the School of Applied Physiology in the medical school. And that was a wonderful, in fact, I loved St. Louis. For all that it offered but mostly because that's where our oldest son was born
1: <laughs>
0: he was born at st louis barnes hospital you'll him.
1: always remember that <laughs> always remember it. yeah speaking of tennis favorite player novak <laughs> uh,
0: i love novak is that what you said
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah
0: yeah i mean how could you not i mean look yeah. at that wimbledon, that wimbledon final against Ryan. right i mean those are you know to I would say of some of the most adored tennis players of all time and boy that was just so exciting and oh man I, I really like both of them but I particularly thought that Novak was just so poised and so stoic throughout that entire match and he just kept himself so well composed, despite, you know, 90% of the audience really pulling for Roger. And yeah, I really give it to Novak. Like yeah. I said, I like both of them. Either one of them, I would have been happy winning, but I thought Novak just played a phenomenal match though. My all-time favorite tennis player, by the way, is Guillermo Vilas. He's an Argentinian. And I just happened to like him because he was such a workhorse. And then Pete Sampras because I yeah. really him. But then yeah, Novak is, is up there for sure.
1: Novak Djokovic is from where, well my parents are from, Serbia. So oh, I'm, cool. I'm Serbian. So when we, when they actually were here for the match oh. and it was just crazy. They were just like up and down because I heard the match was just back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> oh,
0: I can't believe you didn't watch it. It was. I so
1: watched exciting. parts of it. But parts yeah. of it. Yeah, it was long,
0: it was long. Yeah. Well I was really excited and congratulations to you and yeah, Novak is just he's he's top shelf everything he's just a real sportsman and I really admire him
1: awesome so let's see so what do you do for your exercise you know since you're such an advocate for what is your favorite thing that you do daily
0: no, I really appreciate you asking that, because I think that's so important. You know, I, when I was growing up, I really looked to role models that were walking the walk, right? I mean, so often we enter into situations in life where people are mentoring and helping. They talk the talk, and I think that's really important. But for me, having the ability to not just be able to talk the talk from a scientific perspective and, and an understanding of it at a deep level, I, I'm really most proud of the fact that I, I can walk the walk, and I, I really do Place the importance of being physically healthy, at a high priority. So for me, it's about doing what I described in detail in my book, and that's the prize protocol. It's, you know, I, I believe that our bodies are not one dimensional. I mean, we know that in order for us to thrive as a fully integrated human being, we need to be engaged in different modes of of human movement and so that would mean things like resistance functional exercise and we know the value of that not just as a at a young age which kids do very naturally when they go out to play right if you ever watch a kid play they're very very functional in terms of their their resistance that they pr- they put on their body jumping off of you know swings and doing cartwheels and somersaults I and mean, that's functional resistance exercise but we should be doing that even into our Late age, you know, 80s and 90s, we see that with the most healthy, you know, blue zone populations in the world. These are people that are functionally really, really healthy. And so they're carrying groceries up hills, you know, to their homes and 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 laundry. I mean, th- these are people that are working physically. So resistance functional exercise is hugely important. That's the R. And then. Engaging in high-intensity interval exercise and not overdoing it. I think you know right now the big buzzword right is HIIT training, high-intensity interval training, or sprint interval. And I think we're missing the boat here. In fact, I know we are, that we're advocating it and promoting it just too abundantly for people, you know, too common people uh, we're recommending. I think we should only be doing that once or twice a week at the most because our bodies need time to respond. And then third would be stretching, you know, Tai Chi, yoga. You know, that's, we know that's a proven form of, of human movement that keeps us young and healthy in our joints and our ligaments, tendons, and things like that at a very healthy level. So that would be the third type. And then the fourth one would be endurance exercise. And that's really probably most people's default when they talk about, oh gosh, I need to start exercising again. And most people would say that would equate to walking, jogging, swimming, biking. So endurance exercise is super important, but those other three are just as, and in some cases more important. So it's resistance, intervals, stretching, and then endurance. And then the P- Yes. The P is protein pacing. Okay. And so that's kind of the, you know, it's, it's in order actually of, of importance. Protein pacing is the, is the base of the pyramid because we all know that things start with what we fuel our body with. You're a living testament to that. And then it's how we engage in movement and recovery and resilience, our, our ability to respond and recover to adversity and challenge.
1: Yeah, I definitely, when it comes to, you know, the high intensity interval training, I feel like I've seen many do it, overdo it, like five times a week. And, you know, you could really, really hurt yourself. So for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great definitely. observation. Yeah, we are definitely overdoing it right now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. So those are kind of my brief kind of quick questions. And But let's go into more about, you know, when we talk about health and wellness in our society, how has it really gained traction in everyone today?
0: You know, it's gained traction because we are in such a period, as we know with the millennials right now, of information and access of information you know, I call it, and I don't want this to be taken out of context, but I I do refer to it oftentimes as the misinformation overload. We are in the period of misinformation overload in some ways. Now, some of that information is really good, but a lot of it is just being misdirected. And So I would say the greatest impact right now that is influencing people's lifestyle to get healthy or to be healthy is the accessibility of that information. It's just so abundant. It's everywhere. So we have to be real sleuths in how we go about obtaining the proper and correct information. And that's where I think science reigns supreme. That if people would just step back a little bit from this misinformation or this information overload and really take a look at What's rising to the surface with all of this abundant of available information and technology that has been proven and grounded in peer-reviewed, objective, scientific research? And to me, that's the starting point. To kind of tease through what is really the best thing and so you know as, as we've heard I, I serve on many of these boards and I'm a, I'm a fellow in many of these leading organizations in the world when it comes to health and i would say that while they're very well intended and intention for the public in terms of the public health messaging they themselves are putting out too much information i mean if you look at the american college of sports medicine of which i'm a fellow even their exercise recommendations are very very overwhelming and intimidating for the vast majority of the population. And I believe personally, that's why there's less than 20% of the adult population that's meeting the minimum threshold or recommendation of those exercise guidelines. And we just step back from that and think about that for a second. Despite all of these well-intentioned public health messages and exercise and, and nutrition guidelines, less than a quarter, quite a bit less than a quarter, a fifth of the population is actually getting a minimum of that requirement. So something has to be done. We have to do something different because what we're doing right now is not working.
1: So I heard you mention the blue zone. I actually went to medical school at Loma Linda in Southern California, which is one of the blue zones. So tell me more about what you know about the blue zones. I don't know if my audience knows all about it and then like where they are. I know there's different ones in the world and then what's so special about these blue zones?
0: Yeah, that's great. You know, I don't know where all the locations are, but I do know, yes, you, you were in the hotbed of one, at least here in the States, in Loma Linda. You know, so much of them is based upon the surrounding environment. So the, the community in which they live, the environment, the atmosphere in which they live, the geography of where they're living, the communities that they've built up in terms of their family nucleus. You know, that's a very, very important. So anyway, there's there's a couple of defining features that place these various locations around the world into these blue zone categories. And just to step back, the blue zone categories are identified by the quality and the length of life that these individuals experience living in these areas. And so they they have higher rates of longevity of life. They have lower prevalence of of certain chronic health-related diseases. And these are individuals that live in environments that they can in many ways, self subsist, right? They're able to grow their own agriculture and live off the land. So these blue zones are powerful examples of when we surround our living habitus in a way that is self-sufficient, we seem to thrive. If it's being supported by intergenerational families, Mm-hmm. to thrive. And so Sardinia always comes up to the top, right? Um, off the coast of Italy. And, and we know that that's one of the top blue zones in the world. And if you look at what they have, they have everything. They have um, the intergenerational living environment. They have the ability to grow their own food and subsist off the, the, the land of what they have around them agriculturally. They have chronic daily physical exercise so these are people that are walking for their major form of transportation or riding a bike they're still plowing the lands and so you know there's some defining features and so that's really what characterizes these blue zones and provides this really nurturing environment that they that they live from so i you know i take from that that we all can't be that lucky right we all can't live in those environments that we can go out and grow our own fruits and vegetables and have our own livestock you know, right out the door for us all throughout the year, we're just not that lucky. And so you have to begin to artificially create it. I know that sounds crazy, but when, when you think about what we need to learn from these blue zones is that we need to go out of our comfort zone to get into the blue zone. And what that means is we got to stop living with the technological and, and comforts of, of our everyday living that have pulled us further away from those characteristics of the blue zone and work toward getting our own food, or at least preparing it, you know, at least people go to the grocery store, get those foods that you can then take home and prepare on your own. Instead of, you know, taking transportation to it, walk to it, or ride a bike. That's really important. I know it sounds a little trivial, but it's not at all. And as much as you can support your family and live close by and have that intergenerational communication among those various people, and I I think, you know, just to go full circle here, when you had said the greatest influences on my life, boy, when I look back at the lessons that I learned as a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy, sitting with my grandmother and just listening to her and the wisdom that you know came from her mouth, and and just the the love and the grace that she exuded as I was sitting there with her, I oh, mean, it gives me chills, you know, thinking about it because that was so powerful of an experience for me to have. And so, the more we can we can be in the presence of our grandparents and great grandparents and parents and our children and grand- grandchildren boy that's really important so yeah we have to work hard at um, getting it getting out of our comfort zone and living in the the blue zones.
1: I love that. Getting out of your comfort zone to live lo- more like in the blue zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So tell me more about maybe one of your, I know you've done plenty of research studies, third party based, you know, randomized control trials. And, but tell me one that's really, that's that you're very passionate about, whether it's related to the protein pacing, your book, or just t- talk about one of them.
0: Yeah. I, gosh, you know, when I, look at the, the full spectrum of 30 years of doing this research, it's hard to identify just one. But I would say that I did have an opportunity to work with se- some Seventh-day Adventists. And as you know, oh. coming from Loma Linda, that's you know one of the groups that we look toward to have some of these blue zone characteristics, the Seventh-day Adventists. So when I was in West Lafayette, Indiana at Purdue University doing my master's degree in physiology, biological sciences of, of physiology, I recruited a group of Seventh-day Adventists. There happened to be a group out there in West Lafayette. And that was really my first exposure to a a group of of people that were living kind of within this community, living with these lifestyles that were really health promoting. And so that was very eye-opening for me. And many of them, as you know, are vegetarians. And so the first kind of real research study that I was involved in was kind of examining a, a microcosm of, you know, one of these blue zones uh, with the um, Seventh-day and yeah they 're really remarkable and in, in how they do take on some of these living characteristics that really promote longevity and, and optimal health and I was fascinated by it, and so I took a group of them and I compared them to a group of you know typical meat eating carnivore um, <laughs> americans and it was It was really interesting to to observe some of the physiological Characteristics that they both demonstrated, and how healthy these this group of Seventh Day Adventists was. But I would say more recently, that was back in, in, in the nineteen eighties. Believe it or not, I was oh, wow. do, I was doing research on vegetarianism using this you know Seventh Day Adventists.
1: Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, it really
0: was. It was great great start for me. But things evolved, and I would say one of the most landmark research studies that I've been involved in, at least in this work that I've done with nutrition and exercise was on a group of 40 men and women who were in desperate need of an intervention. These were people that were high risk for cardiovascular and metabolic disease, type two diabetes, congestive heart failure, cardiovascular events happening and high blood pressure. So these were people that were really living on the edge of of too much comfort, you would say, and needed to have an intervention. And there was 40 of them. And so when I introduced this concept that I created, protein pacing, it was eye-opening for me to see that something as simple as a dietary intervention, what it involves is paying attention to the quality of the protein that you're consuming. It can be From sources from both animal and plant. If it's animal-based, we encourage people to choose things that are local and organic whenever possible, grass-fed and wild whenever possible. So those are kind of the requirements if they're choosing an animal-based protein source. If it's a plant-based, we try to encourage them to do a non-GMO. We try to have them do an organic-based or a local-based form of plant protein. And so That was number one, the quality of the protein that they were consuming, number one. Number two would be the quantity. And what we know through really high quality, very valid, credible scientific research is that when people consume somewhere between 20 and 40 grams of high quality protein per eating occasion, that suits the body the best. That's an optimal amount. And that range really varies depending upon their age their health status, their fitness level, and then their weight management goal. Are they looking to lose weight, maintain weight, or gain weight? So that's what determines the amount of protein that they would get between 20 and 40 grams. And then third would be the timing of that protein. So when we look at protein pacing, these are the three characteristics. The quality, as I just described, the amount, somewhere between 20 to 40, depending upon those variables that I mentioned and then third the sequence during the day and we seem to know now through again lots of really high quality research every three and a half to four hours seems to be the sweet spot to when our body is benefiting the most from that high quality protein so that was the study that really resonated with me because it was profound when these individuals engaged in protein pacing six days a week and then on this another seventh day one day They did what was called intermittent fasting. The health benefit just exploded off the charts in terms of weight loss, in terms of body composition changes, in terms of fat mass loss, particularly visceral abdominal fat, maintenance of lean body mass. And now, you know, that's something that we all well know that when people lose a lot of weight, oftentimes it does not discriminate where it is lost from. And one of the telltale signs of this protein pacing and intermittent fasting is that it preserves their metabolically active, healthy, lean muscle mass and targets their visceral abdominal belly fat as what is being lost. So that was really eye-opening. But more than that, when you dive a little bit deeper, their cardiovascular variables, their blood pressure improved drastically, their blood lipids improved drastically, their heart function of their blood vessels. So I have really sophisticated techniques that can quantify velocity of blood in the body, the elasticity of the blood vessels. So I have what's called an arteriograph and I can measure all different types of really sophisticated blood vessel heart function variables. So those all improve drastically. Their levels of Toxins that were circulating in the blood improved drastically. Their metabolic factors of insulin and blood sugar, glucose improved drastically. And then many of their inflammatory markers, their cytokines, those, that's just a fancy name for blood markers that are associated with inflammation in the body, CRP and interleukin-1 and 6 and 8, and things like that, TNF-alpha so, yeah, it was, it was a cool study, but here's something that comes out of that research with protein pacing, Nicoletta, that I think is really cool to share. I'm also fascinated by the impact that it has on our general emotional well-being. So I quantify changes in our psychological well-being. And when we introduce protein pacing independent of any other forms of lifestyle intervention, exercise, for example, people's mood improves. And what that speaks to for me is that we know that when we improve the quality of our diet and what we eat, it is not just reserved for helping benefit our physical body and those health markers with our physical body. It's actually just as important and in some cases more important that that good nutrition helps improve our brain function. These people got into much better moods, so their ratings of of confusion and anger decrease their feelings of vitality and energy increase and i think that's a really powerful message
1: that definitely is because most people think of you know the physical not so much of how your mood and how it's actually helping you mentally you know and that's not even you're just saying protein pacing you know you're not combining that with exercise at that point you know that's right Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Probably anyone who's in graduate school needs to have better (laughs) high performance, you know, mental peak, which I'm sure all my listeners will appreciate that because it's so important. And so when it comes to intermittent fasting, since you did mention that, there's a lot of confusion regarding it could be done many different ways. It could be done like 16 hours and then you, you know, eat within an eight hour time frame. It could be where you're supporting it like a with high quality, you know, it could be like nutritionally supported intermittent fasting, which can you go on to maybe explaining kind of what is intermittent fasting and what is the way that you see that it works the best with this protocol?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a hot topic, isn't it? I mean, you know, you put out the question... the term intermittent fasting people like oh yeah so there's there's lots of different ways so what is intermittent fasting first and foremost it's a form of caloric restriction you're actually reducing the amount of calories that you're eating and there's many different ways that it can be introduced into the body now caloric restriction in and of itself is usually defined by a decrease of anywhere between 25 to as much as 40 percent Of your requirement of food that you need to eat to maintain your weight. So it's very uncomfortable. Not a lot of people undergo caloric restriction just because it's not something that can be sustained over the long term. So we're finding that caloric restriction, while it has some really beneficial effects inside the body, if it's not done properly with a very high quality macro and micronutrient composition of the food, then the the person and the organism suffer drastically. So first and foremost, the quality of the the micro and macronutrients, that would be the carbohydrates, fats, and protein, and then the vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients have to be at a very, very high amount in relation to the total number of calories. That's a high nutrient density. So it's just not something that a lot of people can do feasibly and plus it's not feasible for a lot of people to restrict their eating by as much as 40% over you know the rest of their life so what has happened is we've moved into this Different form of caloric restriction called intermittent fasting. We have what is called time restricted intermittent fasting, TRF, time restricted feeding. That's the abbreviation that people use. So when you hear TRF, it's a form of intermittent fasting. People usually will do it for 16 hours and then eat within an eight hour window of time. That works for some people. Personally, it does not work for me because I know that as I'm getting older, the preservation of my lean body mass is a top priority. And I believe that while 16.8 does work for some people in helping weight control, I believe we don't have enough data on it long term. I suspect, based on the scientific literature and what I know about protein synthesis, I think it might play a role in negatively impacting long term a person's lean body mass, and just not necessarily 100% behind it. While I think it works for some people for weight control, I think long-term for body composition it's not going to be maybe ideal. And then we have the various forms of intermittent fasting. We have what's called the 5-2. That would be eating your normal intake for five days during a week, and then reducing your intake, by up to 75%, so you're only eating 25% of what your body requires for two days a week. And some people like doing that, that five 2 Again, you know, if you're someone who is interested in long-term healthy lean body mass, preservation and maintenance and even increase, I'm not so sure that's going to be the best one for a lot of people. So I'm kind of giving you in rank order and I'll get to the the best one in just a second because people say, well, we want to know what you think and what you (laughs) think. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm getting there. So caloric restriction, probably not for a lot of people. You have to be super, super disciplined. Sixteen eight probably not for a lot of people, and especially long-term. 5-2, again, really hard to do two days of that low calorie intake. And then there's what's called alternate day intermittent fasting. And that would be eating a normal diet for one day, and then reducing your calories on a, the next day, and then doing that every other day on the day that you're alternate fasting with that would be again reducing your intake by about 25 to 40%. So some people like doing that one. It works for them. Again, there's some controversy over it because it is hard to, you know, keep flipping each day into that lower state of of caloric reduction and if you're an athlete or somebody who wants to maintain an active lifestyle, you know, reducing those calories on a day that you want to be active because that's going to be 3 or 4 days a week that you're cutting your intake down to that low level, that might not be helpful for you to help your lean body mass. So the one that seems to be rising to the top is the 24-hour, one-day intermittent fast where you are eating normal, As I said, as I did in my study for six days, and then on that seventh day, you're reducing your intake down to about 25% of what you're taking in. And it's not done on a weekly basis. What we know now through really sophisticated and excellent peer-reviewed research is that even if you do that one day, 24-hour intermittent fast, and I'll go into detail about what it uh, involves, it has persisting benefits in your body's hormonal endocrine state for up to two to three months. So it's not something that people feel that they have to do every single week. For people that are in a place of of weight loss, I call it dynamic weight loss. like For example, in the subjects that I had in my study, I had those 40 individuals that were classified as obese. They had up to 50% of their body weight as body fat. We had them doing it once a week for 11 weeks, and then we reduced it down to once a month for an entire year. And they responded phenomenally in terms of their preservation of their lean muscle mass. So for the general public, I think that one day of that intermittent fast, where they're consuming in total, in terms of total calories, it ranges between about 350 to 500 calories. You only need to do it once a month. Some people like to do it twice a month, but I always like to have them at least have a week in between doing it. So do it every other week for a month or once a month. In some cases I do it, for example, now I'm doing it once every two to three months and that suits me really well. So what it involves is when you are doing that 24-hour intermittent fast, you're consuming 300 to 500 calories, but they're very, very nutrient-dense, meaning they're very highly concentrated in plant nutrients. We call those phytochemicals. Phyto means plant, and chemicals are the nutrients that I'm talking about. They're plant chemicals. So they're things like antioxidants. People, we hear a lot about antioxidants, and those are substances that are found within fruits and vegetables that help the body in lots of different ways in reducing disease risk. And so things like berries, blueberries, blackberries, wild berries, goji berries, um, wolfberry, just about any berry, strawberry, blackberry, any berry that you eat is usually really highly concentrated in antioxidants. We also know that pomegranates have a lot and things like that. And then adaptogens. And adaptogens are plants that have survived In very, very harsh living conditions. And so they have adapted their genetic makeup to survive in very harsh climates. Many times we find those in things like the the Siberian desert, right? And so things that survive out there have to be really rugged and, and sturdy and robust in their makeup to be able to survive. And what we know is that Because they've adapted, sometimes they're just in in living environments where there's a lot of predators, insects that are invading them, and so they build up their own ability to resist against those. What we now know is that not only have they adapted very well to a stressful living environment themselves to allow them to survive, but when we extract them and put them into our own body, they do the same thing. They help us adapt to stress. And so, adaptogens, we're going to start to hear more and more about. In fact, you know, things like ashwagandha and eleuthero and rhodiola and the list goes on. We now know that when humans consume them, they derive the same benefit of being able to adapt to stress. And so, when you're on that one day of, of that intermittent fast, just making sure that you're getting a really high quality intake of those antioxidants and adaptogens, and then a good quality of protein source that can, you can ingest twice during that day. Not a lot. We're talking only, you know, 20 to 30 calories a couple of times a day. And along with the antioxidants and adaptogens is the sweet spot. And people respond extremely well from a metabolic profile and a body composition.
1: So in that study, after they did it once a week, and then they did it for maintenance once a month, um, you looked at not only, which is very important, the lean muscle preservation, but that they also maintained their visceral fat and all that was kind of maintained, as in what they lost, they kept, correct? Great.
0: Yes, great question. And I wish I had a visual to say, <laughs> to show everybody, because what you just described is is really the essence of it. And yeah, I think we're all on this goal and this journey in life to be our best self. And it really begins with you know how our bodies feel so that we can engage in a lifestyle that allows us to live our best life. And so a body composition plays a critical role. And what you just described is exactly what happened, that during that 11-week weight loss, but I call it the dynamic weight loss phase, they had massive reductions in their abdominal visceral fat and their lean body mass portion of their total body weight actually went up 9%. I mean it's just absurd to think about. So they last they lost massive amounts of weight up to 25 pounds on average. Some of them lost more than 65 pounds, some lost, you know, high teens. All of them lost weight, but the the collective group of men and women lost 25 pounds on average in that 11 weeks. And over the 1 year of follow-up, we call it weight loss maintenance, their lean body mass actually increased and their visceral abdominal fat actually decreased. So there was something very, very positive happening in both phases of both the dynamic weight loss, 11 week, and then in the entire 52 week
1: maintenance. That's remarkable, and that's just amazing. Regarding protein, what age, I mean, do people have to start, even young, you know, you're 25 years old, female, like, well, what age do you have to start thinking about, you know, that you're already starting to lose your lean muscle, you know, slowly?
0: Yeah. So for, for women, they definitely have to pay close attention to that. Right. I mean, they're faster matures of, of the sexes. And so their bodies are going to transition into that more mature place. Before boys, and so yeah, for young women, young girls, young women, they really need to start paying attention to that optimal amount of protein, not high protein. That's one thing I always dispel, and I do it in my book. I, I say, Listen, this is not a high protein at all. In fact, just real quickly before I get into what you've asked, is when we look at the protein intake in the United States and in Canada, North America, since the 1970s, we have what's called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, the NHANES data. and. It's the largest compilation of census data on nutrition that we have in this country, the NHANES data. And from 1970, when we first started collecting that nutrition data, to the latest data that has come out in the 2000s, our protein intake has declined significantly fat has been steady over that time period. There's been some bleeps, but overall it's been a a pretty plateaued intake of fat. Carbohydrate has increased significantly. So the reason why we have gained weight, the obesity epidemic since the 1970s, is for no other reason that our intake of simple carbohydrates has increased significantly. Protein has decreased. Fat has stayed the same. So we know we're in a protein-deprived eating culture right now. So for these young women, these young men, they need to pay attention to this protein intake beginning in adolescence, for sure. Instead of going for 20 to 40 grams, you know, from ages eight to 18, they should be hovering somewhere around 10 to 20 grams at each of those feedings. That is a sweet spot. And for those that are maturing a little bit quicker, you could even kick that up, you know, to even, you know, 20 to 25, which would be well within a safe level for them to consume. But they, they definitely need to start paying attention to that 10 to 20 grams per eating equi- occasion during those adolescent into their teenage years,
1: for sure definitely because some of the confusion that i've heard from others is kind of when you say protein they're thinking like oh high protein and how, how does that damage the kidneys and all that but that's not what you know what you're discussing in your book you're just, you're talking protein pacing that's right
0: absolutely yeah you know first of all to consume or eat a, a level of protein that would impact the, the kidneys for example that has to do the filtering in any way you would have to eat massive amounts of protein. In fact, most people physically simply can't eat that much protein. So I would just say it's really hard to be worried about consuming too much protein. The only ones that might be at risk are these really hardcore you know, bodybuilder type of people that are drinking you know, massive weight gainers throughout the entire day. And that's not healthy for us. We know that. But they might be, you know, one group that might be exposing their bodies to, you know, an excessive amount of protein. But very rarely do they ever experience any, you know, negative health consequence. Now, if you do have diagnosed kidney disease or an insufficiency in kidney function, then yes, absolutely. I'm not by any means suggesting that you should be paying attention to a high protein intake at all. But for people that have normal functioning kidneys, their body's healthy, the risk of them consuming too much protein to impact them negatively is almost impossible to achieve. So I would just say pay closer attention to the quality of your protein, making sure that you're getting it in at those three and a half to four hour eating segments and doing it with a combination of really high quality plant-based or animal-based powders, such as rice and pea protein, fava bean, mung, hemp. I mean, there's lots of different really high-quality bean-type proteins. And the same with animal. You could do whey, which we know is the top-quality one, a good undenatured whey protein. But then whole foods are also very good. But I just want people to know that there's no harm in doing really high-quality plant-based proteins and animal-based protein powders or bars because they're made from the highest quality if you get a good you know good um, company that's sourcing it so yeah i think we just have to be more disciplined and once we get it into a routine as i give people strategies in my book it becomes really thoughtless and something that you really don't have to even think about just you know it's part of your daily lifestyle routine and you'll be in a blue zone before you know it
1: Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, it is so hard for people to achieve their health goals because there's just so much abundance of information out there, you know, but so why do you believe so strongly in being able to share the value of all your all the findings and the research you have done? What's your ultimate mission?
0: Nicoletta, that's a great question. And it's one that I don't take lightly. In fact, it's, it's my why of why I do what I do. And you know, when I think back to what got me started in all of this, it compels me to commit to it even more, and that is because of as I started off talking about at the beginning of the podcast, I had two of the most loving and adoring grandparents anybody could ever ask to be around in growing up, and they believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. They were always there to love me unconditionally. I had two amazing parents with my mother and my father, and you know when I started to see them fall ill with certain chronic lifestyle-related diseases it broke my heart, literally. And I just remember at a young age being so deeply emotionally affected, watching them suffer at, at certain times. And as I have grown up in my life now, you know, continuing to watch loved ones and, and people that I know, not necessarily even family. Like I said before, my superpower is my emotional sensitivity. And for me, that's why I'm so passionate about what I do, because I feel so strongly in it. I feel that we need to rely on science because High-quality science doesn't care what you believe, (laughs) and I think that's really important that we sometimes interject our personal subjective opinion in how we want to view health, and there's too many people that are running the airwaves of technology and using a self-subjective viewpoint in pushing their agenda and their propaganda and rhetoric. And I think that's unfortunate because it's causing more harm than good. And so I want to speak, be someone who's speaking from a, a place of, of scientific rigor and credibility and validity and let people know that there is an, an, a simpler, more effective way to transform their health for the better if they follow these, these practices and these strategies. And that's my mission. That's my driving force. It hurts me to watch people suffer, and I'm just trying to play my little role in my corner of the world and, and helping spread it.
1: And creating a blue zone out of a comfort zone. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yes. Would you like to go into a little more detail on the R, I, S, and E, which is more on kind of, I know we talked a lot about nu- the nutrition aspect and in intermittent fasting, but would you like to kind of hit, maybe hit one key point for, say, resistance, one key point for the others, just kind of takeaway points?
0: Excellent. I'll start by saying this. Of those four different types of exercise, human movement, I call it, of resistance, interval, stretching, and endurance, you only need to do each of those one day a week. Now, I know there's people out there saying, what? But absolutely. And the reason is, is because they work synergistically with each other. They're not things that are done in isolation. You do them in isolation. So what I say is, when you do a resistance training, and it can be as simple as doing some squats, with nothing more than your body weight, or some lunges, or some step-ups. I have my 85-year-old mother holding on the handrails of her stairs and just stepping up to the first step. That's resistance exercise. It can be that simple. Uh, For people that don't want to leave their home, I tell them to go out and buy some water jugs, right? They go out and they buy a one-gallon, one-gallon water jugs or milk jugs, and you just squat with those sit up and step up with those you can sit in a chair and do press-ups that's resistance exercise and it's functional because when people go grocery shopping and they need to lift items into a cabinet or a refrigerator or a shelf they need to be able to do it with the confidence knowing that they're not going to injure themselves and functional exercise is nothing more than putting yourself in those positions but doing it in a controlled environment of functional resistance exercise so that's why i think that's so important it's simple It's one day a week that's enough to get your muscles to begin functioning at a higher level. That's powerful. So one day is all you need. And my free app, by the way, I haven't even mentioned this. If you go to the Apple store, you can download the prize life app for free. I'm giving it away for free. So it's a free app and you'll see some of these, you'll see some of these exercises. With the intervals, as you and I have both said, it's really important that people don't overdo it. And we're in a real, I think, volatile place right now with exercise recommendations because intervals are being recommended way too often for people and they're just not healthy to be done that often. One day a week is all you need and you'll derive the benefit from those throughout the rest of the week. And that's nothing more than this. If you are somebody who likes to walk, go out and walk And between maybe two telephone poles or mailboxes. There's not many telephone poles in the world anymore, but mailboxes walk at a very high intensity for 30 seconds. So however many mailboxes that takes you to walk, power walking for 30 seconds, do that and get your heart rate up really high enough so that you can't have a conversation with somebody if you're walking with them and then let yourself fully recover for three to four minutes, whereby you're doing more of a window shopping stroll. So that's really almost like nothing. You're just simply walking really, really slowly. Do that for three to four minutes. Do seven of those, one day a week. Mm. So anybody can do that. We know that people who just had heart attacks, people who have congestive heart failure, people who have really severe medical conditions, we know that when we start to introduce high intensity intervals in their recovery, one day during their rehab, they have significant improvement. So it's not just for elite athletes. This is for people that are 80, 90 years old and for people who are very diseased. We know that in type two diabetics, when they start doing interval exercise, their markers of their diabetes improve drastically. So all you need is one day a week. Stretching can be as simple as a morning sun salutation for five to 10 minutes. on a a day, you should do that every day actually, but you wanna try to get into an extended stretching bout one day a week where you're doing it for anywhere between 30 and 60 minutes. And it can be very gentle stretching. We can do what's called static stretching. So you're holding the poses. Yoga is a fantastic way to introduce stretching. So I'm a big believer and a proponent of yoga, once a week is enough to get those joints and those ligaments and tendons working at at a better quality of life. And then, endurance exercise, what I recommend with that is you should stay generally active every day, anywhere between four to 10,000 steps. I know there's this artificial, arbitrary goal of 10,000, but that's totally made up. If you look at the scientific literature, it shows benefit from anywhere between four to 10,000 steps. So, on days that you're not doing the resistance interval stretching and endurance, I recommend on those other three days, get somewhere between four to 10,000 equivalent steps during those days. And it doesn't have to be anything rigorous. It can be very, very low key, but that's enough to keep your body moving in a very healthy way. But on that one day of endurance, you do want to kick it up a little bit and work for about an hour of continuous endurance or what we call aerobic cardiovascular exercise. It could be riding a bike with your, your spouse or your children or with a friend it can be doing pool exercise or going for a swim it can be you know going for a jog or walk it can be any form of continuous rhythmical cross-country skiing rollerblading Mm -hmm. rowing i have we have a lot of people that like to get on lakes in the northeast so you can get into a canoe or a kayak or a rowing skull and just row for for an hour that's endurance exercise I usually tell people on a scale of one to 10, one is lying in a bed, 10 is pushing yourself to the hardest level possible. When you're doing an endurance bout, you should be right about in the middle, but a little bit higher, about a six. So it's where you can have a conversation and maybe be able to do it for you know, a couple of hours if you had to. That's the endurance. Those are my nuggets of the rise exercise
1: that's awesome thank you so because like actually in pregnancy i've learned to incorporate a little bit like i do you know prenatal yoga one to two times a week swimming like you know swimming slash spinning cycling right once a week Excellent. um and then what is the other one walking resistance. but you know i know yeah resistance resistance to do a little bit more but i would do like once once a week of a yeah. body pump kind of class pump it, yeah. but i remember before like in college i would just do say spinning or cycling or i would pickle only one category and and but it makes it so much more fun and I think that you actually want to exercise more when you have this variety and plus it's better for you you're not overdoing like a orange theory class like every like five days a week <laughs> you know <laughs> fantastic
0: I, what you just described is exactly it's so it's so much variety within each of those it's so fun and, and people get excited and the research that I've done on it I've taken really highly trained athletes who have trained in what you're describing, one form of exercise, you know, for the last five, ten years. And when I have them do the rise, at first they're like bouncing out of their heads thinking there's no way I'm going to get in shape or stay in shape doing this just one day a week. But what we find is when they do each of those just one day a week, their quality of experience goes way up. When they get into the weight room that one day, they are just putting out The highest level exertion. When they get into that stretching routine, that one day, they are, you know, experiencing that pose and that hold so much deeper and longer than what they thought. So, yeah, there's real value in in doing it less because the quality of the experience goes way up. I wanted to say one more thing because it was so important, but, you know, you just had some really, really valuable aspects of it. You know, getting outside in nature as much as possible with each of these exercises. And we know now that there's something called the nature pill. And the nature pill is so important, even if it's five or ten minutes during the day where we're out in nature, breathing in fresh air, looking up at the sky and the trees. That has an important and potent effect on our stress hormones by lowering them. Our blood pressure elevates, uh, decreases. Our cortisol, that's our stress hormone, decreases. So there's tremendous value in getting out in nature and doing your walk, doing your run, doing your swim, doing your bike. So great. Yeah.
1: I love it. Well, we could keep talking, but I know we, we've been, there's so much good things to talk about. I I just have a question for you. What would you like to leave my millennial duck listeners with something that will just inspire them? You know, a lot of them are currently in the, you know, hard phases of whether it be graduate school, medical school, and they don't even think about, they're just so overwhelmed just with, you know, studying, but what is important to leave? What's a message that you'd like to leave them with?
0: Well, I have some millennial children. So (laughs) You know, for me, more than anything, I want you to know that I believe in you. I love you all. I have children the same age. So I, I feel that connection to you. And I believe that what you're setting out to accomplish, you will accomplish. So there's people here that that believe in you and you are the future of our world. But more than anything, I want you to appreciate harmony in life. And that's the balance of, of our experience of living here. And I think more and more millennials are without question really embracing harmony in terms of how they live their life, right? We're looking for that work-life-family balance. I have, like I said, millennials, and I can see it in them. They're yearning for it, and you deserve it. You know, there was a period of time where we we kind of shunned, you know, having that harmony in our overall life. And so I'm just here to tell people that harmony should be your goal and that there are people that believe in you. And one other message I would say is that it's so important to continue to follow your dreams and what you seek out, you will achieve. And again, keep life in balance, keep life in harmony. And that's my message for the millennial group.
1: <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So where can people find more of your research? You know, I'm sure they'll wanna look. Is there a specific website where list all your research? You know, they I'm sure they could go to PubMed, but also just and where can people find you?
0: You know, the best place is the website, prizelife.com. P R I S E, it's spelled with an S for the stretching. E, life, L I F E.com. Amazon, of course, is where the protein pacing diet book is, so they can find that there. But those would be the best places. So looking to stay in touch with you moving forward. And if there's anything else I can do to help support you and your awesome podcast to bring it to the top, of the <laughs> podcasts, I want to do that for you. Um thank so you. yeah, I'm I'm really honored and thank you so much for having me and this has been a real treat. Thank you.
1: Appreciate it, thank you so much. Thank you so much for spending this time with me on the Millennial Doc Podcast. I am so thankful for your support and hope you receive inspiration today to discover a better you, better health, and your best life. It would mean the world to me if you can take a second to share this episode with someone you think would love it. For free resources and inspiration, head over to drnicoletta.com and make sure to follow Millennial Doc Podcast on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes. And it would mean so much to me if you left a five-star review of the show. As always, step out with confidence and rock your life.